0: Book 4, Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book 4 What Life Is chapter four end of sophia part two three dick povey kept his word at a quarter past five he drew up in front of number forty nine deansgate manchester there you are he said not without pride now we'll come back in about a couple of hours or so just to take your orders whatever they are he was very comforting with his suggestion that in him sophia had a sure support in the background Without many words, Sophia went straight into the shop. It looked like a jeweller's shop, and a shop for bargains generally. Only the conventional sign over a side entrance showed that, at heart, it was a pawnbroker's. Mr. Till Baldero did a nice business in the five towns, and in other centres near Manchester, by selling silverware second-hand, or nominally second-hand, to persons who wished to make presents to other persons or to themselves. He would send anything by post on approval. Occasionally he came to the five towns, and he had once, several years before, met Constance. They had talked. He was the son of a cousin of the late, great, and wealthy Boldoreau, sleeping partner in Birkinshaws, and Gerald's uncle. It was from Constance that he had learnt of Sophia's return to Bursley. Constance had often remarked to Sophia what a superior man Mr. Till Boldoreau was." The shop was narrow and lofty. It seemed like a menagerie for trapped silverware. In glass cases, right up to the dark ceiling, silver vessels and instruments of all kinds lay confined. The top of the counter was a glass prison, containing dozens of gold watches, together with snuff-boxes, enamels, and other antiquities. The front of the counter was also glazed, showing vases and large pieces of porcelain, A few pictures in heavy gold frames were perched about. There was a case of umbrellas with elaborate handles and rich tassels. There were a couple of statuettes. The counter on the customer's side ended in a glass screen, on which were the words Private Office. On the seller's side the prospect was closed by a vast safe. A tall young man was fumbling in this safe. Two women sat on customer's chairs, leaning against the crystal counter, the young man came towards them from the safe, bearing a tray. How much is that goblet? asked one of the women, raising her parasol dangerously among such fragility and pointing to one object among many in a case high up from the ground. That, madam? Yes. Thirty-five pounds. The young man disposed his tray on the counter. It was packed with more gold watches adding to the extraordinary glitter and shimmer of the shop. He chose a small watch from the regiment. "'Now, this is something I can recommend,' he said. "'It's made by Cuthbert Butler of Blackburn. I can guarantee you that for five years.' He spoke as though he were the accredited representative of the Bank of England, with calm and absolute assurance. The effect upon Sophia was mysteriously soothing. She felt that she was among honest men— the young man raised his head towards her with a questioning deferential gesture can i see mr boldero she asked mrs scales the young man's face changed instantly to a sympathetic comprehension yes madam i'll fetch him at once said he and he disappeared behind the safe the two customers discussed the watch then the door opened in the glass screen and a portly middle-aged man showed himself he was dressed in a blue broadcloth, with a turned-down collar and a small black tie. His waistcoat displayed a plain but heavy gold watch-chain, and his cufflinks were of plain gold. His eye-glasses were gold-rimmed. He had grey hair, beard, and moustache, but on the backs of his hands grew a light brown hair. His appearance was strangely mild, dignified, and confidence-inspiring. He was, in fact, one of the most respected tradesmen in Manchester. He peered forward, looking over his eyeglasses, which he then took off, holding them up in the air by their short handle. Sophia had approached him. "'Mrs. Scales,' he said, in a very quiet, very benevolent voice. Sophia nodded. "'Please come this way.' He took her hand, squeezing it commiseratingly, and drew her into the sanctum. "'I didn't expect you so soon,' he said. I looked up the trains, and I didn't see how you could get here before six. Sophia explained. He led her further through the private office into a sort of parlor, and asked her to sit down, and he too sat down. Sophia waited, as it were, like a suitor. I'm afraid I've got bad news for you, Missus Scales," he said, still in that mild, benevolent voice. "He's dead," Sophia asked. "'Mr. Till nodded nodded. "'He's dead. I may as well tell you that he had passed away before I telegraphed. "'It all happened very, very suddenly.' He paused. "'Very, very suddenly.' "'Yes,' said Sophia weakly. "'She was conscious of a profound sadness, which was not grief, though it resembled grief, and she also had a feeling that she was responsible to Mr. Baldero for anything untoward that might have occurred to him by reason of Gerald. "'Yes,' said Mr. Baldero, deliberately and softly. "'He came in last night, just as we were closing. "'We had very heavy rain here. Don't know how it was with you. "'He was wet, in a dreadful state, simply dreadful. "'Of course I didn't recognise him. "'I'd never seen him before, "'so far as my recollection goes. "'He asked me if I were the son of Mr. Till Baldereau "'that had this shop in 1866. "'I said I was. "'Well,' he says, "'you're the only connection I've got. "'My name's Gerald Scales. "'My mother was your father's cousin. "'Can you do anything for me?' he says. "'I could see he was ill. "'I had him in here. "'When I found he couldn't eat nor drink, "'I thought I'd happen best session for the doctor. "'The doctor got him to bed. "'He passed away at one o'clock this afternoon. "'I was very sorry my wife wasn't here "'to look after things a bit better, "'but she's at Southport, not well at all.' "'What was it?' Sophia asked briefly. "'Mr. boldero indicated the enigmatic. "'Exhaustion, I suppose?' he replied. "'He's here?' demanded Sophia, lifting her eyes to possible bedrooms. "'Yes,' said Mr. Boldero. "'I suppose you would wish to see him?' "'Yes,' said Sophia. "'You haven't seen him for a long time, your sister told me,' Mr. Boldero murmured sympathetically. "'Not since seventy, said Sophia. "'Eh, dear, eh, dear!' ejaculated Mr. Boldero, "'I fear it has been a sad business for you, Mrs. Scales.' "'Not since seventy. he sighed. "'You must take it as well as you can. I am not one that talks much, but I sympathise with you. I do that. I wish my wife had been here to receive you.' Tears came into Sophia's eyes. "'Nay, nay,' he said. "'You must bear up now. "'It's you that make me cry.' Said sophia gratefully. You were very good to take him in. It must have been exceedingly trying for you. Oh, he protested. You mustn't talk like that. I couldn't leave a boldero on the pavement, and an old man at that. Oh, to think if he'd only managed to please his uncle, he might have been one of the richest men in Lancashire. But then there has been no boldero Institute at Strangeways, he added. They both sat silent for a moment. "'Will you come now, or will you wait a bit?' asked Mr. Boldero gently. "'Just as you wish. I am sorry, as my wife's away that I am.' "'I'll come now,' said Sophia firmly. But she was stricken. He conducted her up a short, dark flight of stairs, which gave on a passage, and at the end of the passage was a door ajar. He pushed the door open i leave you for a moment,' he said, always in the same very restrained tone. "'You'll find me downstairs there, if you want me.' And he moved away with hushed, deliberate tread. Sophia went into the room, of which the white blind was drawn. She appreciated Mr. Boldero's consideration in leaving her. She was trembling. But when she saw, in the pale gloom, the face of an aged man, peeping out from under a white sheet on a naked mattress, She started back, trembling no more, rather transfixed into an absolute rigidity. That was no conventional expected shock that she had received. It was a genuine unforeseen shock, the most violent she had ever had. In her mind she had not pictured Gerald as a very old man. She knew that he was old. She said to herself that he must be very old, well over seventy. But she had not pictured him. This face on the bed was painfully, pitiably old. A withered face, with the shiny skin all drawn into wrinkles. The stretched skin under the jaw was like the skin of a plucked fowl. The cheekbones stood up, and below them were deep hollows, almost like egg-cups. A short, scraggy white beard covered the lower part of the face. The hair was scanty, irregular, and quite white. A little white hair grew in the ears, The shut mouth obviously hid toothless gums, for the lips were sucked in. The eyelids were as if pasted down over the eyes, fitting them like kid. All the skin was extremely pallid. The body, whose outlines were clear under the sheet, was very small, thin, shrunk, pitiable as the face. And on the face was a general expression of final fatigue, of tragic and acute exhaustion, Such as made Sophia pleased that the fatigue and exhaustion had been assuaged in rest, while all the time she kept thinking to herself horribly, Oh, how tired he must have been! Sophia then experienced a pure and primitive emotion, uncoloured by any moral or religious quality. She was not sorry that Gerald had wasted his life, nor that he was ashamed to his years and to her. The manner of his life was of no importance. What affected her— was that he had once been young, and that he had grown old, and was now dead. That was all. Youth and vigour had come to that. Youth and vigour always come to that. Everything came to that. He had ill-treated her. He had abandoned her. He had been a devious rascal. But how trivial were such accusations against him! The whole of her huge and bitter grievance against him fell to pieces and crumbled. She saw him young and proud and strong, as, for instance, when he had kissed her lying on the bed in that London hotel—she forgot the name—in 1866, and now he was old and worn and horrible and dead. It was the riddle of life that was puzzling and killing her. By the corner of her eye, reflected in the mirror of a wardrobe near the bed, she glimpsed a tall, forlorn woman, who had once been young and now was old who had once exulted in abundant strength, and trodden proudly on the neck of circumstance, and now was old. He and she had once loved, and burned, and quarrelled in the glittering and scornful pride of youth, but time had worn them out. Yet a little while, she thought, and I shall be lying on a bed like that. And what shall I have lived for? What is the meaning of it? The riddle of life itself was killing her, and she seemed to drown in a sea of inexpressible sorrow. Her memory wandered hopelessly among those past years. She saw Chirac with his wistful smile. She saw him whipped over the roof of the Nord at the tail of a balloon. She saw old Niepce. She felt his lecherous arm round her. She was as old now as Niepce had been then. Could she excite lust now? Ah, oh, the irony of such a question! To be young and seductive! to be able to kindle a man's eye. That seemed to her the sole thing desirable. Once she had been so. Neeps must certainly have been dead for years. Neeps, the obstinate and hopeful voluptuary, was nothing but a few bones in a coffin now. She was acquainted with affliction in that hour. All that she had previously suffered sank into insignificance by the side of that suffering. She turned to the veiled window, and idly pulled the blind and looked out. Huge red and yellow cars were swimming in thunder along Deansgate. Lorries jolted and rattled. The people of Manchester hurried along the pavements, apparently unconscious that all their doings were in vain. Yesterday he too had been in Deansgate, hungry for life, hating the idea of death. What a figure he must have made! Her heart dissolved in pity for him. She dropped the blind. "'My life has been too terrible,' she thought. "'I wish I was dead. I have been through too much. It's monstrous, and I cannot stand it. I don't want to die, but I wish I was dead.' There was a discreet knock on the door. "'Come in,' she said, in a calm, resigned, cheerful voice. The sound had recalled her with the swiftness of a miracle, the unconquerable dignity of human pride. Mr. Till Baldereaux entered. "'I should like you to come downstairs and drink a cup of tea,' he said. He was a marvel of tact and good nature. My wife is unfortunately not here, and the house is rather at sixes and sevens, but I have sent out for some tea.' She followed him downstairs into the parlour. He poured out a cup of tea. "'I was forgetting,' she said. "'I am forbidden tea. I mustn't drink it.' She looked at the cup, tremendously tempted. She longed for tea. An occasional transgression could not harm her. But no, she would not drink it. "'Then what can I get you?' "'If I could have just milk and water,' she said meekly. Mr. Boldero emptied the cup into the slop-basin, and began to fill it again. "'Did he tell you anything?' she asked, after a considerable silence. "'Nothing.' "'said Mr. Boldero, in his low, soothing tones. "'Nothing except that he had come from Liverpool. "'Judging from his shoes, I should say, "'he must have walked a good bit of the way.' "'At his age?' murmured Sophia, touched. "'Yes,' sighed Mr. Boldero. "'He must have been in great straits. "'You know he could scarcely talk at all. "'By the way, here are his clothes. "'I've had them put aside.' Sophia saw a small pile of clothes on a chair. She examined the suit, which was still damp, and its woeful shabbiness pained her. The linen collar was nearly black. its stud of bone. As for the boots, she had noticed such boots on the feet of tramps. She wept now. These were the clothes of him who had once been a dandy, living at the rate of fifty pounds a week. "'No luggage or anything, of course?' she muttered. "'No.' said Mr. baldero, In the pockets there was nothing whatever but this. He went to the mantelpiece, and picked up a cheap cracked letter-case, which the fire opened. In it were a visiting-card, Senorita Clemencia Borgia, and a bill-head of the Hotel of the Holy Spirit, Concepcion del Uruguay, on the back of which a lot of figures had been scrawled. "'One would suppose,' said Mr. Baldereau, "'That he had come from South America. "'Nothing else? "'Nothing.' "'Gerald's soul had not been compelled to abandon much in the haste of its flight. "'A servant announced that Mrs. Scales's friends were waiting for her outside in the motor-car. "'Sophia glanced at Mr. Till Boldoreau with an exacerbated anxiety on her face. "'Surely they don't expect me to go back with them to-night,' she said. "'And look at all there is to be done.' Mr. Tilboldero's kindness was then redoubled. "'You can do nothing for him now,' he said. "'Tell me your wishes about the funeral. I will arrange everything. Go back to your sister to-night. She'll be nervous about you, and return to-morrow, or the day after. No, it's no trouble, I assure you.' She yielded. Thus, towards eight o'clock, when Sophia had eaten a little under Mr. Boldero's superintendence, and the pawn-shop was shut up. The motor-car started again for Bursley, Lily Hall being beside her lover, and Sophia alone in the body of the car. Sophia had told them nothing of the nature of her mission. She was incapable of talking to them. They saw that she was in a condition of serious mental disturbance. Under cover of the noise of the car, Lily said to Dick that she was sure Mrs. Scales was ill. And Dick— putting his lips together, replied that he meant to be in King Street at nine-thirty at the latest. From time to time Lily surreptitiously glanced at Sophia, a glance of apprehensive inspection, or smiled at her silently, and Sophia vaguely responded to the smile. In half an hour they had escaped from the Ring of Manchester, and were on the county roads of Cheshire, polished, flat, sinuous. It was the season of the year when there is no night, only daylight and twilight, when the last silver of dusk remains obstinately visible for hours. And in the open country, under the melancholy arch of evening, the sadness of the earth seemed to possess a fire anew. Only then did she realise the intensity of the ordeal through which she was passing. To the south of Congleton one of the tyres softened. Immediately after Dick had lighted his lamps, he stopped the car and got down again. They were two miles, Astbury, the nearest village, He had just, with the resignation of experience, reached for the tool-bag, when Lily exclaimed, "'Is she asleep, or what?' Sophia was not asleep, but she was apparently not conscious. It was a difficult and trying situation for two lovers. Their voices changed momentarily to the tone of alarm and consternation, and then grew firm again. Sophia showed life, but not reason. Lily could feel the poor old lady's heart— "'Well, there's nothing for it,' said Dick briefly, when all their efforts failed to rouse her. "'What shall you do?' "'Go straight home, as quick as I can, on three tyres. We must get her over to this side, and you must hold her. Like that we shall keep the weight off the other side.' He pitched back the tool-bag into its box. Lily admired his decision. It was in this order, no longer under the spell of the changing beauty of nocturnal landscapes, that they finished the journey. Constance had opened the door before the car came to a stop in the gloom of King Street. The young people considered that she bore the shock well, though the carrying into the house of Sophia's inert, twitching body, with its hat forlornly awry, was a sight to harrow a soul sturdier than Constance. When that was done, Dick said curtly, "'I'm off. You stay here, of course.' "'Where are you going?' asked Lily. "'Doctor,' snapped Dick, hobbling rapidly down the steps. 4. The extraordinary violence of the turn in affairs was what chiefly struck Constance, though it did not overwhelm her. Less than twelve hours before—nay, scarcely six hours before—she and Sophia had been living their placid and monotonous existence "'undisturbed by anything worse than the indisposition or death of dogs or the perversity "'of a servant. And now, the menacing Gerald Scales having reappeared, Sophia's form lay "'mysterious and affrightening on the sofa, and she and Lily Hall, a girl whom she had not met "'till that day, were staring at Sophia side by side, intimately sharing the same alarm. "'Constance rose to the crisis.' She no longer had Sophia's energy and decisive peremptoriness to depend on, and the banes in her was awakened. All her daily troubles sank away to their proper scale of unimportance. Neither the young woman nor the old knew what to do. They could loosen clothes, vainly offer restoratives to the smitten mouth—that was all. Sophia was not unconscious, as could be judged from her eyes, but she could not speak, nor make signs. Her body was frequently convulsed. So the two women waited, and the servant waited in the background. The sight of Sophia had effected an astonishing transformation in Maud. Maud was a changed girl. Constance could not recognize, in her eager deferential anxiety to be of use, the pert naughtiness of the Minx. She was altered as a wanton of the Middle Ages would have been altered by some miraculous visitation. It might have been the turning-point in Maud's career." Dr. Stirling arrived in less than ten minutes. Dick Povey had had the wit to look for him at the Federation meeting at the town hall. And the advent of the doctor and Dick, noisily, at breakneck speed in the car, provided a second sensation. The doctor inquired quickly what had occurred. Nobody could tell him anything. Constance had already confided to Lily Hall the reason of the visit to Manchester, but that was the extent of her knowledge— Not a single person in Bursley, except Sophia, knew what had happened in Manchester. But Constance conjectured that Gerald Scales was dead, or Sophia would never have returned so soon. Then the doctor suggested that, on the contrary, Gerald Scales might be out of danger, and all of them pictured to themselves this troubling Gerald Scales, this dark and sinister husband that had caused such a violent upheaval. Meanwhile the doctor was at work, he sent Dick Povey to knock up Critchlow's, if the shop should be closed, and obtain a drug. Then, after a time, he lifted Sophia, just as she was, like a bundle on his shoulder, and carried her single-handed upstairs to the second floor. He had recently been giving a course of instruction to enthusiasts of the St. John's Ambulance Association in Bursley. The feat had an air of the superhuman. Above all else, it remained printed on Constance's mind— the burly doctor treading delicately and carefully on the crooked creaking stairs, his precautions against damaging Sophia by bruised contacts, his stumble at the two steps in the middle of the corridor, Sophia's horribly limp head and loosened hair, and then the tender placing of her on the bed, and the doctor's long breath and flourish of his large handkerchief, all that under the crude lights and shadows of gas-jets. The doctor was nonplussed, Constance gave him a second-hand account of Sophia's original attack in Paris, roughly as she had heard it from Sophia. He had once said that it could not have been what the French doctor had said it was. Constance shrugged her shoulders. She was not surprised. For her there was necessarily something of the charlatan about a French doctor. She said she only knew what Sophia had told her. After a time Dr. Stirling determined to try electricity and Dick Povey drove him up to the surgery to fetch his apparatus. The women were left alone again. Constance was very deeply impressed by Lily Hall's sensible, sympathetic attitude. "'Whatever I should have done without Miss Lily I don't know,' she used to exclaim afterwards. Even Maud was beyond praise. It seemed to be the middle of the night when Dr. Stirling came back, but it was barely eleven o'clock, and people were only just returning from Hanbridge Theatre and Hanbridge Music Hall. The use of the electrical apparatus was a dead spectacle. Sophia's inertness under it was agonising. They waited, as it were, breathless, for the result. And there was no result. Both injections and electricity had entirely failed to influence the paralysis of Sophia's mouth and throat. Everything had failed. "'Nothing to do, but wait a bit,' said the doctor quietly. They waited in the chamber. Sophia seemed to be in a kind of coma. The distortion of her handsome face was more marked as time passed. The doctor spoke now and then in a low voice. He said that the attack had ultimately been determined by cold produced by rapid motion in the automobile. Dick Povey whispered that he must run over to Hanbridge and let Lily's parents know that there was no cause for alarm on her account, and that he would return at once. He was very devoted." On the landing, outside the bedroom, the doctor murmured to him, "'U.P.' And Dick nodded. They were great friends. At intervals the doctor, who never knew when he was beaten, essayed new methods of dealing with Sophia's case. New symptoms followed. It was half-past twelve when, after gazing with prolonged intensity at the patient, and having tested her mouth and heart, he rose slowly and looked at Constance. "'It's over,' said Constance, and he very slightly moved his head. "'Come downstairs, please,' he enjoined her. In a pause that ensued, Constance was amazingly courageous. The doctor was very solemn and very kind. Constance had never before seen him to such heroic advantage. He led her with infinite gentleness out of the room. There was nothing to stay for. Sophia had gone.' Constance wanted to stay by Sophia's body, but it was the rule that the stricken should be led away. The doctor observed this classic rule, and Constance felt that he was right, and that she must obey. Lily Hall followed. The servant, learning the truth by the intuition accorded to primitive natures, burst into loud sobs, yelling that Sophia had been the most excellent mistress a servant ever had— the doctor angrily told her not to stand blubbering there, but to go into her kitchen and shut the door if she couldn't control herself. All his accumulated nervous agitation was discharged on Maud like a thunderclap. Constance continued to behave wonderfully. She was the admiration of the doctor and Lily Hall. Then Dick Povey came back. It was settled that Lily should pass the night with Constance. At last the doctor and Dick departed together, the doctor undertaking the mortuary arrangements. Maud was hunted to bed. Early in the morning, Constance rose up from her own bed. It was five o'clock, and there had been daylight for two hours already. She moved noiselessly, and peeped over the foot of the bed at the sofa. Lily was quietly asleep there, breathing with the softness of a child. Lily would have deemed that she was a very mature woman who had seen life and much of it. Yet to Constance, her face and attitude had the exquisite quality of a child's. She was not precisely a pretty girl, but her features, the candid expression of her disposition, produced an impression that was akin to that of beauty. Her abandonment was complete. She had gone through the night unscathed, and was now renewing herself in calm, oblivious sleep. Her ingenuous girlishness was apparent then. It seemed as if all her wise and sweet behaviour of the evening— could have been nothing but so many imitative gestures. It seemed impossible that a being so young and fresh could have really experienced the mood of which her gestures had been the expression. Her strong virginal simplicity made Constance vaguely sad for her. Creeping out of the room, Constance climbed to the second floor in her dressing-gown, and entered the other chamber. She was obliged to look again upon Sophia's body. Incredible swiftness of calamity! Who could have foreseen it? Constance was less desolated than numbed. She was as yet only touching the fringe of her bereavement. She had not begun to think of herself. She was drenched as she gazed at Sophia's body, not by pity for herself, but by compassion for the immense disaster of her sister's life. She perceived fully now for the first time the greatness of that disaster— Sophia's charm and Sophia's beauty—what profit had they been to their owner! She saw pictures of Sophia's career, distorted and grotesque images formed in her untravelled mind from Sophia's own rare and compressed recitals. What a career! A brief passion, and then nearly thirty years in a boarding-house. And Sophia had never had a child, had never known either the joy or the pain of maternity— She had never even had a true home, till, in her sterile splendour, she came to Bursley. And she had ended thus. This was the piteous, ignominious end of Sophia's wondrous gifts of body and soul. Hers had not been a life at all. And the reason? It is strange how fate persists in justifying the harsh generalisation of Puritan morals, of the morals in which Constance had been brought up by her stern parents. Sophia had sinned. It was therefore inevitable that she should suffer. An adventure such as she had in wicked and capricious pride undertaken with Gerald Scales could not conclude otherwise than it had concluded. It could have brought nothing but evil. There was no getting away from these verities, thought Constance, and she was to be excused for thinking that all modern progress and cleverness was as naught, and that the world would be forced to return upon its steps, "'and start again in the path which it had left. "'Up to within a few days of her death "'people had been wont to remark "'that Mrs. Scales looked as young as ever "'and that she was as bright and energetic as ever. "'And truly, regarding Sophia from a little distance, "'that handsome oval, that erect carriage of a slim body, "'that challenging eye, "'no one would have said that she was in her sixtieth year. "'But look at her now, with her twisted face.' her sightless orbs, her worn skin. She did not seem sixty, but seventy. She was like something used, exhausted, and thrown aside. Yes, Constance's heart melted in an anguished pity for that stormy creature, and mingled with the pity was a stern recognition of the handiwork of divine justice. To Constance's lips came the same phrase as had come from the lips of Samuel Povey on a different occasion. "'God is not mocked.' The ideas of her parents and her grandparents had survived intact in Constance. It is true that Constance's father would have shuddered in heaven, could he have seen Constance, solitarily playing cards of a night. But in spite of cards, and of a son who never went to chapel, Constance, under the various influences of destiny, had remained essentially what her father had been. Not in her was the force of evolution manifest. There are thousands such— Lily, awake and reclothed, with that unreal mien of a grown and comprehending woman, stepped quietly into the room, searching for the poor old thing, Constance. The layer-out had come. By the first post was delivered a letter addressed to Sophia by Mr Till Baldereaux. From its contents the death of Gerald Scales was clear. There seemed then to be nothing else for Constance to do. What had to be done was done for her and stronger wills than hers put her to bed. Cyril was telegraphed for, Mr. Critchlow called, Mrs. Critchlow following—a fussy infliction, but useful in certain matters. Mr. Critchlow was not allowed to see Constance. She could hear his high, grating voice in the corridor. She had to lie calm, and the sudden tranquillity seemed strange after the feverish violence of the night. Only twenty-four hours since, and she had been worrying about the death of a dog. With the body crying for sleep, she dozed off, thoughts of the mystery of life merging into the incoherence of dreams. The news was abroad in the square before nine o'clock. There were persons who had witnessed the arrival of the motor-car, and the transfer of Sophia to the house. Untruthful rumours had spread as to the manner of Gerald Scales's death. Some said that he had dramatically committed suicide. But the town, though titillated, was not moved as it would have been moved by a similar event twenty years or even ten years earlier. Times had changed in Bursley. Bursley was more sophisticated than in the old days. Constance was afraid lest Cyril, despite the seriousness of the occasion, might exhibit his customary tardiness in coming. She had long since learnt not to rely upon him but he came the same evening. His behaviour was in every way perfect. He showed quiet but genuine grief for the death of his aunt, and he was a model of consideration for his mother. Further, he at once assumed charge of all the arrangements in regard to both Sophia and to her husband. Constance was surprised at the ease which he displayed in the conduct of practical affairs, and the assurance with which he gave orders. She had never seen him direct anything before, He said, indeed, that he had never directed anything before, but that there appeared to him to be no difficulties, whereas Constance had figured a tiresome series of varied complications. As to the burial of Sophia, Cyril was vigorously in favour of an absolutely private funeral, that is to say, a funeral at which none but himself should be present. He seemed to have a passionate objection to any sort of parade. Constance agreed with him, but she said that it would be impossible not to invite Mr. Critchlow, Sophia's trustee, and that if Mr. Critchlow were invited, certain others must be invited. Cyril asked, "'Why impossible?' Constance said, "'Because it would be impossible, because Mr. Critchlow would be hurt.' Cyril asked, "'What does it matter if he is hurt?' and suggested that Mr. Critchlow would get over his damage. Constance grew more serious. The discussion threatened to be warm." "'Suddenly Cyril yielded. "'All right, Mrs. Plover, all right. "'It shall be exactly as you choose,' he said in a gentle, humouring tone. "'He had not called her Mrs. Plover for years. "'She thought the hour badly chosen for verbal pleasantry. "'But he was so kind that she made no complaint. "'Thus there were six people at Sophia's funeral, including Mr. Critchlow. "'No refreshments were offered. "'The mourners separated at the church. "'When both funerals were accomplished,' Cyril sat down and played the harmonium softly, and said that it had kept well in tune. He was extraordinarily soothing. He had now reached the age of thirty-three. His habits were as industrious as ever, his preoccupation with his art as keen. But he had achieved no fame, no success. He earned nothing, living in comfort on an allowance from his mother. He seldom spoke of his plans, and never of his hopes." He had, in fact, settled down into a dilettante, having learnt gently to scorn the triumphs which he lacked the force to win. He imagined that industry and a regular existence were sufficient justification in themselves for any man's life. Constance had dropped the habit of expecting him to astound the world. He was rather grave and precise in manner, courteous and tepid, with a touch of condescension towards his environment as though he were continually permitting the perspicacious to discern that he had nothing to learn, if the truth were known. His humour had assumed a modified form. He often smiled to himself. He was unexceptionable. On the day after Sophia's funeral, he set to work to design a simple stone for his aunt's tomb. He said he could not tolerate the ordinary gravestone which always looked to him as if the wind might blow it over, thus negativing the idea of solidity. His mother did not in the least understand him. She thought the lettering of his tombstone affected and finicking, but she let it pass without comment, being secretly very flattered that he should have deigned to design a stone at all. Sophia had left all her money to Cyril, and had made him the sole executor of her will. This arrangement had been agreed with Constance. The sisters thought it was the best plan." "'Cyril ignored Mr. Critchlow entirely, and went to a young lawyer at Hanbridge, "'a friend of his and of Matthew Peel Swinnerton's. "'Mr. Critchlow, aged and unaccustomed to interference, "'had to render accounts of his trusteeship to this young man, and was incensed. "'The estate was proved at over thirty-five thousand pounds. "'In the main Sophia had been careful, and had even been parsimonious. "'She had often told Constance that they ought to spend money much more freely.' And she had had a few brief fits of extravagance. But the habit of stern thrift, begun in eighteen seventy and practised without any intermission till she came to England in eighteen ninety seven, had been too strong for her theories. The squandering of money pained her, and she could not, in her age, devise expensive tastes. Cyril showed no emotion whatever on learning himself the inheritor of thirty five thousand pounds. He did not seem to care. He spoke of the sum as a millionaire might have spoken of it. In justice to him it is to be said that he cared nothing for wealth except in so far as wealth could gratify his eye and ear trained to artistic voluptuousness. But for his mother's sake and for the sake of Bursley he might have affected a little satisfaction. His mother was somewhat hurt. His behaviour caused her to revert in meditation again and again to the futility of sophia's career and the waste of her attributes. She had grown old and hard in joyless years in order to amass this money, which Cyril would spend coldly and ungratefully, never thinking of the immense effort and endless sacrifice which had gone to its collection. He would spend it carelessly as though he had picked it up in the street. As the days went by, and Constance realised her own grief, she also realised more and more the completeness of the tragedy of Sophia's life. Headstrong Sophia had deceived her mother, and for the deception had paid with thirty years of melancholy and the entire frustration of her proper destiny. After haunting Bursley for a fortnight in elegant black, Cyril said, without any warning, one night, "'I must go the day after to-morrow, mater,' and he told her of a journey to Hungary, which he had long since definitely planned with Matthew Peel Swinnerton, and which could not be postponed, as it comprised business. He had hitherto breathed no word of this, He was as secretive as ever. As to her holiday, he suggested that she should arrange to go away with the Holls and Dick Povey. He approved of Lily Hall and of Dick Povey. Of Dick Povey, he said, "'He's one of the most remarkable chaps in the five towns.' And he had the air of having made Dick's reputation. Constance, knowing there was no appeal, accepted the sentence of loneliness. Her health was singularly good. When he was gone, she said to herself, Scarcely a fortnight, and Sophia was here at this table. She would remember every now and then, with a faint shock, that poor, proud, masterful Sophia was dead. End of Book 4 Chapter 4